You are listening to Payers, Providers, and Patients, Oh My. I'm Joe Records. And I'm Pio Nanavetti. And today we're chatting with our colleagues Lydia Nico Najem and John Brennan about the legal and regulatory issues surrounding the growth of clinics offering ketamine therapies to patients. This is an area that they've been watching closely as providers and patients have been on a trend of exploring alternative therapies and emerging medicines, especially in the mental health space. And linked to that heightened demand for alternative therapies, private equity investors and innovators are also exploring investments in psychedelic-assisted healthcare and cannabis. So while those are Schedule I controlled substances and therefore come with more strings attached, investors and entrepreneurs have come across ketamine, which is Schedule Three, and therefore easier in some respects to offer to patients. That's right, Pyle. On this episode, we'll discuss the legal issues that investors, providers, and innovators should be prepared to navigate uh, when considering offering ketamine-assisted treatment, whether that's through telehealth platforms or or clinics, uh, including under federal laws, regulations, and and state and local laws related to the practice of medicine and licensure, among other issues. Let's get started with some background on, on ketamine. Lydia, can you start us off? First of all, welcome to the podcast, and can you tell us what ketamine is, the, the kinds of entities that we're helping navigate this space, and, and what ketamine-assisted treatment would you typically be used for? Thanks, Joe. Uh, it's great to be here, Joe and Paul. Uh, great to be with you. So ketamine was first introduced to the medical community as a surgical anesthetic uh, more than 50 years ago, and now ketamine is gaining ground uh, as a promising treatment for uh, resistant major depressive disorder, as well as the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder, among other mental health disorders. And so new ketamine clinics offer ketamine infusion therapy, which would involve the administration of a single infusion or a series of infusions for the management of psychiatric disorders. Uh, but it's also, ketamine is also offered through intramuscular shots, known as IM shots, or sublingual treatments like pastilles that you put under your tongue uh, with or without psychotherapy. But of course, the purpose of uh, the ketamine infusion therapy is to assist with psychotherapy generally. Gotcha. And so can you just talk to us a little bit about how these clinics are able to offer ketamine infusion therapy for a controlled substance? Sure. So just a little bit more background in terms of ketamine. Ketamine is a Schedule Three controlled substance under the Federal Controlled Substances Act. And so, and in the U.S., as, as mentioned, ketamine has been approved by the FDA, uh, the Food and Drug Administration, for anesthetic purposes, so when you were put under anesthesia. But once the FDA approves a drug, uh, healthcare providers who are authorized to prescribe that drug, such as physicians, uh, they may prescribe it for an unapproved use when they judge that it is medically appropriate for the patients to, to do so for the patient and within the scope of their authority to practice. So as long as properly licensed providers are authorized to prescribe the ketamine uh, under the state licensing laws, they may prescribe it for off-label uses, including for, for psychotherapy purposes, again, when deemed medically appropriate by the provider. So a ketamine clinic entity and all of the contractor or employed providers authorized to prescribe the ketamine have to meet the requirements uh, of the um, DEA and the standard 
the state standard of care requirements in addition to any of the other healthcare business structure requirements that we'll get into in a little bit, uh, such as the corporate practice of medicine and fraud and abuse in order to provide the services. But bottom line, as long as the providers are authorized to prescribe ketamine, they may do so for off-label uses uh, as long as they're medically indicated and within their authority to prescribe. And we'll note just that there is, um, in 2019, the FDA approved esketamine, also known as Spravato, which was a nasal spray for the treatment of um, resi treatment resistant depression used in conjunction with an antidepressant uh, nasal spray. So there is some forms of ketamine that have been approved for the indication of psychotherapy. So Lydia, you, you mentioned practice structure. Um, how do the, the compliance issues related to providing treatment with, with an off-label use of a controlled substance, how would those impact how a provider might want to structure its, its practice or its clinic? So clinics have to navigate the general rules applicable to setting up a healthcare practice, including the corporate practice of medicine and fraud and abuse laws, which I'll turn over to John. And then in addition to that, they have to pay attention to the standards of care and any licensing and certification requirements uh, that may impact how they're able to deliver those services when it comes to controlled substances. But with that, John, would you like to talk about the rules of setting up a healthcare clinic? Yeah, thanks, Lydia. Hi, everybody. Uh, it's nice to be here. With regard to the ketamine uh, industry in general, you can think of it as having several different components. Um, as Lydia mentioned, the R&D component which, uh, is a challenge in and of itself. And then uh, ketamine companies or, or those uh, interested in the ketamine business uh, typically establish some sort of a management and marketing entity and then try to hook up with uh, local, I'll use the word clinics for now, but local groups of providers who are interested and committed to um, prescribing ketamine um, as an accepted uh, clinical treatment. Now, at this point, most of those clinics are in large cities, uh, and so uh, what, the, uh, what the ketamine industry has done at this point is to create clinics or group practices of physicians in large cities. Um, as Lydia mentioned, the actual provision of ketamine must be done by a clinician. And so in addition to traditional uh, licensure laws, those entities formed on a local basis must be developed as group practices to avoid corporate practice of medicine issues. That means those entities have to be owned by doctors and the contract between the physicians in the management company has to avoid fee-splitting concerns in terms of state laws. So far, we haven't had federal payment for ketamine services, so federal fraud abuse laws are not relevant at this point. But forming those group practices uh, to make sure that there are no corporate practice of medicine issues or fee-splitting issues is crucial. And then in addition to that, uh, the ketamine networks uh, that are being sought to be provided at a state level will look to uh, collect a number of psychiatrists or physicians who are ketamine favored uh, into a group uh, which might not be the group they're in now. So another group practice would have to be uh, created of, for those ketamine-interested um, uh, psychiatrists. That poses other issues with regard to how they may be paid. And then finally, 
uh, along the line of provision of services uh, are anesthesiologists. And so the models that we look at at the state level are models that include anesthesiologists either within the group practice or with some sort of contractual relationship to the group practice. All of these financial relationships, the financial relationships to the physicians, the anesthesiologists, and the management companies uh, necessarily must follow state laws with regard to fraud and abuse, that is, no kickbacks, uh, fee splitting, that is, no payment of physician fees to non-physicians. And when the management companies get into marketing, where they establish a platform for ketamine marketing to uh, patients, uh, extra care must be given to uh, not having a relationship that pays the marketing company um, for, quote, referrals. Uh, so, so it's a nest of state-related issues that face the development of ketamine clinics at this point. So how would some of these considerations change if a clinic wanted to provide ketamine-assisted therapy or otherwise prescribe ketamine via telehealth? That's a great question, Paul. And the issue with prescribing controlled substances via telehealth is there is a, there's Ryan Height Act, which is part of the Federal Controlled Substances Act, that that essentially precludes a provider from prescribing controlled substances if they have not seen the patient in person, been able to evaluate them in person physically, or if there is not a uh, DA-certified DA provider who is with the patient at the time of the uh, evaluation. And so for that reason, the providers would not be able to prescribe the ketamine simply through a telehealth service unless, again, there is a provider on the other end with a DEA certification. So that has been a complicating factor in that, and there is some component of an in-person visit. Also, if the if the services are provided through an IV, uh, if the ketamine is provided through the IV, then Again, usually that is done by an anesthesiologist or a certified nurse anesthetist who's able to do that with the patient. So bottom line at this time, uh, due to the regulatory uh, requirements and the fact that providers aren't able to prescribe uh, controlled substances strictly through telehealth, that has been a limitation. And John, you mentioned some of the fee-splitting considerations that can come up in the context of, of practice structure. I know we deal with fee-splitting issues all the time, um, as well as corporate practice of medicine issues when we're talking about a medical practice coexisting with a, a management company, which, which often is a tool used when there is an investor involved. Are there any particular um, considerations for management or investment companies? Yeah, thanks, Joe. There are, and uh, we've dealt with... Uh two really difficult states in that regard, California and New York, each of which have very explicit and strong fee-splitting laws, wherein those laws have been enforced against management companies that have involved themselves in percentage-based compensation uh, relationships with the physician practices, where the management company says, for example, pay us 10% of your fees as a management fee. Those types of percentage agreements are difficult. They're not permitted in New York, for example. And so the management uh, agreement itself between the, the ketamine company and the group practice has to be on a fair market value 
uh, we suggest set in advance based on the actual services that the management company provides so that you can demonstrate to the state that any payments by the group practice physicians to the management company are not a portion of their fee, but are actually a fair market payment for the management company. Now, in California, well, the rule is slightly different. There may be uh, percentage management compensation agreements, but uh, nonetheless, the percentage agreement has to be uh, demonstrated to be fair market value. So the key is fair market value and no invasion into the physician's fee by the management company. Most other states are similar to that, uh, and so that's, that's one concern. The other concern is within the ketamine clinic framework, the relationship between the prescribing psychiatrist and the actual anesthesiologist who often provides the ketamine has to be very carefully uh, uh, considered so that you neither have a psychiatrist sharing the fees of an anesthesiologist or vice versa, each of which could be an issue under state law. Again, fair market value, calculating what the actual fair payment is to each physician for the services rendered within these uh, uh, clinics, which are a little looser, frankly, than uh, a regular group practice as they evolve into statewide or citywide networks are really important. So those are the, those are the two pressure points where fee splitting uh, issues could arise. So John, something you just touched on that I'd like to hear more about, how are providers being reimbursed for these services that involve ketamine? Yeah, it, it's an interesting, you know, evolving market pile. Um, right now, as we mentioned, there's no federal reimbursement for ketamine, and there's, to my knowledge, and no third-party uh, uh, reimbursement for the provision of ketamine services. So almost entirely, ketamine is provided through private pay. And uh, the way most ketamine companies set up the payment system is that patient will learn about ketamine, the provision of ketamine services, through access to a, uh, to a website or a framework or a network that talks about the provision of ketamine services. Patient will then be screened very loosely by the uh, non-clinician provider and then assigned or referred somewhere for potential diagnosis and then treatment. Usually, the model is that once a patient is diagnosed for appropriateness of ketamine, he or she will pay a flat fee for the provision of a series of services, both diagnostic and actual treatment of, say, $6,000 or something like that. So that's how most uh, ketamine clinics work now. An interesting issue to be concerned about, of course, there is the transfer of the interest of the patient from the internet framework to the practitioner and to make sure, again, that the patient is paying for the services only and not for, quote, the referral. Even though there is no federal law here, there are state laws, again, uh, that would prohibit or prevent payment out of the patient's fee to the marketer for the marketing. Now, that's how reimbursement works now. Uh, I think, you know, many ketamine providers are hoping that in the future, third-party reimbursement will be available pending further approvals from the FDA. But right now, it's essentially a private pay industry. 
Thanks, John. Uh, Lydia, at the, the top of the episode here, I think we, we sort of introduced the idea that there are myriad legal issues here. We've gone into some depth on a few of those. Can you give us a little bit of a summary on what some of the, the other issues that providers and, and investors and other businesses may need to consider in this space? Sure thing. And I think, you know, reimbursement being one of the key ones that John just discussed. But then as we go further along, these services or these businesses collect data, how that data can be used. A lot of the new practices have a platform or some sort of way to collect a lot of the data, including what's dubbed as the real world data uh, from different devices, from participant or or the patient uh, provided data in responses to particular questions, et cetera, how those companies or those those practices can use that data for further research and development or to uh, better their services, which would be on evidence basis, but perhaps not in a way that has been traditionally identified previously. In terms of the standard of care that we touched on, I noted that physicians can prescribe controlled substances like ketamine because these have been FDA approved and they can prescribe them off-label. But it's not clear to what extent perhaps other providers like nurse practitioners or uh, physician's assistants can prescribe their controlled substances off-label as well. It's not to say that they can't, but it's just not as clear of an answer. One of the other thoughts or what we've come across for these businesses is that they have to consider how easy or hard it would be to obtain malpractice insurance for the ketamine administration services. We'll note that in the case of ketamine, particularly uh, ketamine has been identified by the DEA as a drug that has been used illegally by predators of sexual assault because it causes individuals to feel detached from their bodies and surroundings, so not as much in control. So obviously there are some other potential liabilities there that have to be considered, plus it's an off-label use, generally speaking. So those are just a couple of other considerations as in terms of regulatory compliance or compliance otherwise when entering into this industry. Joe, let me just add, uh, with regard to uh, access to files, again, emphasizing that at this point, ketamine is not uh, reimbursed by a federal health care program. There's sort of a growing theory under federal anti-kickback law that the provision of access to files constitutes, in some circumstances, a referral uh, under the federal anti-kickback law. Now, I don't agree with that. I don't think it is a referral. Um, But there is some case law now in situations where uh, uh, an entity that has information on the provision of certain kinds of patient services would provide that patient data to another provider of another type of service, not with any connection to the patient at all, but simply providing the patient data file, and at least in one court case, at least one court, I believe incorrectly, but nonetheless, one court has determined that the mere provision of that data file could constitute a, quote, referral under the kickback statute. And then obviously, if there's remuneration for that, it's remuneration for referral. So uh, again, we're not in the federal realm yet. We are in the state realm. I think that's a minority view of what the kickback statute is all about, but it's something to think about. Definitely. I saw that case. It was a, a bit of a head scratcher. To close us out here, what do we think the future is for ketamine clinics practicing in the U.S.? 
The treatment is clearly gaining popularity. I'm not sure uh, to ex- what extent, Joe and Paul, you watch MTV, for example, or follow the reality stars, but I'll just say that there has been those in reality TV who are undergoing the treatment themselves and in real time are describing what their experience is like and, and that it is helping them. And so that seems to further popularize the treatment. As John had mentioned, the treatment is not covered by third-party payers or the federal government yet, and it is quite expensive. So that might be something that's a barrier in terms of access to this care, but to the extent that the popularity would be influenced by the fact that it's in the media now, and even, I will say, Gwyneth Paltrow on her blog, Goop, uh, has covered, you know, the ketamine psychotherapy treatment. We expect that the treatment will gain popularity and that it will become more widely available. Yeah, I, I would just mention, more broadly speaking, opportunities for alternative health care. Those opportunities are growing and are becoming more accepted. I suspect socially, ketamine is closely akin to psychedelic drugs, for example, and uh, there's been a lot of interest there. And uh, the barriers so far obviously are efficient uh, blessing by the FDA to warrant payment for these services by third parties and the government. Uh, Ketamine is uh, approved for for, uh, the treatment of depression in other countries, and there are other studies in other countries that um, support its uh, efficacy. But I think many of these ketamine companies and other psychedelic drug companies are betting that soon uh, there will be more acceptance of these uh, treatments either through official uh, approval by FDA and thus open the door to third-party insurance and federal reimbursement, or at least uh, from a social uh, expectation perspective, uh, and I know at least one state is there already, not surprisingly Oregon, but um, I think that's what these companies are, are betting on. It's still pretty expensive. Only a small portion of the population can take advantage of this uh, this treatment, but um, that's the bet for the future, and it's getting a lot of play in the investment world, in, in public uh, offerings, et cetera, so we'll see. Well, thank you, John and Lydia. We appreciate your insight on this topic. Payers, Providers, and Patients Oh My is a podcast brought to you by Kroll and Mooring LLP. You can find more information at kroll.com slash healthcare podcast. Mm-hmm.